Yeah, I make games, and I'm your host, Ms. As It Is, with co-hosts Brogan Hackett and Adam Pipe, and this week we're joined by Vimlark. So, Vimlark, what do you do? Hi, I'm Vimlark. I make games. Today's episode was sponsored by Rudy Fail. Be sure to check out their website and follow them on Twitter. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, DM me on Twitter. Vimlark, what's like your, I guess, job or full-time? What do you do making games and other stuff? Uh, right now, I'm in a weird position. I have tech, I've actually been furloughed from my actual job for like a year, uh, starting with the whole pandemic thing that kind of put a real damper on everything. So to make up for the time period until I can eventually go back someday, uh, I've been making games and YouTube videos and Twitch streaming. Nice. Is that pay full time or is that like making enough? It's, it's making it enough to survive at the moment. It's not something like with all of my metrics and stats right now, I think in about a year I could probably make it full time. But for the moment, I'm kind of being supplemented by other things and then... Hmm. I mean, ideally, I'm holding out to go back to my job because I've been working there for like eight years and we yeah. were rolling with it. So I, I enjoyed yeah. the company. But, you know, I'm just at the moment, I'm the our, our big thing. At, our big thing was live entertainment. So that's kind of been dead. So once that comes back, hopefully we'll be able oh. to get back. Like in person live. Yeah, we were uh, our, one of our big advertisers that we worked with was uh, a company that did like live entertainment. Okay, right. And also, for anyone who doesn't know, furloughed means a temporary leave of absence from work. Yeah, not not by choice. Basically, it means you're still technically <laughs> employed there, but they don't pay you and you don't get to work. <laughs> All right, let's let's uh, let's jump into the questions. So let's see. Um, so Adam, go ahead and ask your question. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, sure. I can, can jump right into my question. Um, so um, often, like when I'm making games and trying to like add stuff, just so people will think it look expensive, so they will want to pay money for it, you know? Um, and especially now that I'm like working on a commercial thing, I'm, I'm like thinking about stuff like that. So I guess my question is like, that: what stuff you can put in games that'll make it look expensive? Interesting. Um, I'd say for me, since I also, I, I'm in a little bit of a weird spot because I've never actually sold the game. I've never put a commercial game up. I mostly do games for free. I'm a, I'm kind of like, I'm not, you know, the new version of like a Flash developer, just putting games up on just <laughs> HTML effectively. But uh, the big thing I've found that kind of helps increase that like, you know, quote unquote expensive look is just a lot of like polish and just clean graphics and the general things that people consider for like, you know, juice. So the, the, it's the little extras, right? Like you can have a character run into something, you know, bump it and cool. Okay. You hit a wall, but if you run into that wall and the character kind of squishes a little bit and there's a nice little sound effect, maybe a little particle poof that ups the, uh, that ups the quality level, the feel, the polished where everyone's kind of like, Oh, that's just, it's got a little bit more to it, which makes it feel, I guess, more expensive. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Juice, the polish. Yeah, that makes it. Yeah, I've noticed you do that a lot. I, I'm, in your games, you always animate like crazy everything. I'm really big on like I don't do a lot of like people think I'm. I do a lot of, like pixel art animating, and I really don't. Most of my characters, most of my things are four frames of animation. But in <laughs> but in mm -hmm. engine, I do a lot of squishing and stretching of the sprites, which yeah. adds a lot more without a lot of like overhead because animating takes an extremely long time. Like it's yeah, hard, exactly. <laughs> yeah. and I think people and, don't give animators enough credit. 
<laughs> yeah, and the worst part is when you see people um, like actually animated the squishes and stuff. So you can do that with code, but then like people make an actual like animation where it squishes by just like changing the scale. But they could could have just like done that in code. So <laughs> you know, you do you do get a different effect. It squishes differently. Um, there are there is there is a definite difference in the way it works. You get a lot more control by animating by hand. But at least for me oh, as a solo dev, or solo dev, it's uh, it's way harder to pull off yeah. the animate everything and still make a game. Yeah, definitely too. Mm -hmm. But um... I guess that's also part of the question: is how do you manage to do expensiveness when you when you don't have the money to to buy expensive? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Too. Exactly. Yeah. Make it look like you have an art team, like an animation team. Secretly, it's just some code. <laughs> I, I think personally, I definitely want to play with like that that sort of stretch, stretch and squash stuff more because it, from what I've seen, it brings so much more life to a game. And uh, mm -hmm. I really want to try it. I think there's a Unity plugin called Dootween that seems to handle yeah. a lot of that really nicely. And I've been itching to try it lately, but I haven't got a project to try it on yet. Hmm. Yeah, I, I do it a lot. I have just like this one script where if you call squish, the thing squishes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've been using it like since my first game month game. And it's still, still the same script and I use it in every game. And I like expand upon it every now and then. Um, but yeah, it's so powerful because it just... Um, especially like when switching to frames and stuff, if you just... Um, add like a squish to it while it switches to the frame, it looks more animated than if you just switch the frame, you know? Um, right, yeah. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, and even with rolling in the squishes, um, also uh, bulges are another one where, like I'll do that on buttons, right? As you hover over a button, as like as your mouse goes over it, give it a quick little increase the size by like 0.1% and then bring it back down real oh, fast. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just, yeah. It just gives it that little like bump. Mm -hmm. And it's those little things I think that kind of, that's that expensive feel, at least in my mind. It's like, this is the attention to detail. These are the little things. It's like, oh, there was a lot of time spent here. This feels more worth it. Mm, for sure. And you mm -hmm. definitely see it like mm -hmm. in, in Nintendo games and stuff. Like all the buttons are so juicy. Cut that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I... I think actually, like, without touching any of the gameplay, if you just make really nice menus for your game, yeah. um, it will feel so much better. And mm -hmm. I never do that. <laughs> this is a, <laughs> a do-as-I-say-not-what-I-do sort of situation, but <laughs> definitely if you, like, if you put, like, twice as much time into the menus as you normally would, I reckon, like, your game, your, your game will seem a lot better. <laughs> yeah, too. It's, it's really weird because I'm... Uh, I was really against menus for a really long time, and I still kind of am because, especially for game gems, there's not not really a point to making. I feel, but um, yeah, like you don't. I mean, this really, I don't see why you need like control options for a jam game. I mean, people will complain, mm. but who cares, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely like menus. Um, if you have like a really optimized, like a very juicy um, menu with like proper fonts and stuff. I feel like the game doesn't even need to be good and just launch it and it's like, oh damn, this game was worth my five bucks, you know? <laughs> well, I think it increases the perception. So like, yeah. you know, people want to feel like they got value, even if it's not a paid thing, like even for game jams, mm -hmm. I kind of, I, I would I would argue the opposite way on, I, I do menus in all my game jams with a logo. Mm -hmm. And I kind mm -hmm. of feel that that's important because that kind of, for me, mm -hmm. as you get into it, that kind of sets the tone for what you're going to see. Um, yeah, that's I, like. 
I play a lot of games every Friday. I do, I play community games and all that kind of stuff. So I play a ton of like, you know, game jam games, games that people are like working on in development games. And the menu is a big thing when I get to a menu that's, you know, default font, default buttons, you know, no logo, or if mm. there is a logo, it's just, you know, <laughs> the default font typed out of the name. It, mm. it pulls yeah. down your experience no matter how good the game is because it's like getting into it is kind of like, yeah. I mean, think of it this yeah. way, right? If you, go to a, if you go to a doctor or a dentist and their waiting room doesn't look nice, yeah. <laughs> how do you feel about the place, right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, exactly. That... And that's why I always people tell people never to make menus because... Um, it's, you know, I'd rather have like no menu than a really bad one, you know? I, I would um, almost agree. Uh, no menu jumping into the game is probably better than a bad menu. Yeah. I, I might, I might agree with you on that one. I think. Yeah. Also, I think there's like kind of a hidden charm to jumping into a game immediately. Like you launch the exit and suddenly like you're in a room and stuff. It's really weird. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> my, my, um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, Vim, Vim just mentioned something a moment ago that uh, made me think of something, which is I always, like, no matter what the time frame is, I always find a good font for, for a project. Like, even even on, like, a one-day jam, I would find something I haven't used before for a font. Just because, mm -hmm. like, default font, it just puts people off. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> or, like, people that still use, like... Um, okay, this is like Unity. Sorry for getting technical, but like not the text match stuff, just like the default Unity. Um, oh yeah. UI. And then like all the text is like conspicuously blurry, and oh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I quite like the Godot's default font, but you can't resize it, so it's just like, well, I have to use something else. Maybe they did that on purpose, so you wouldn't use that's actually kind the of default smart. beyond testing. That's hard. That's <laughs> hard. You can't resize. <laughs> Maybe they just added it for like developer stuff, but like don't please don't put this into your game, so we'll make it useless, <laughs> you know. <laughs> that's my ideas for expensive. I was just gonna say music. Hmm. I mean that's not something you see, but if you if you put music in your game it just immediately becomes so much or just background noise, like oh, like yeah, just wind sure. blowing yeah. or something. It just immediately becomes like ten times more atmospheric and like hmm. good. Especially like ambient noises and stuff, like a, a room sound when you're in a room, you know. Yeah. <laughs> ambient it's, noises, it's... yeah. But also, I think I think if you're going that direction, something that, and I, and there's another thing I think I need to do more is ambient uh, particle effects, mm. like mm. Mm -hmm. just just little bits floating around in the game that mm. don't add too much visual noise, but add like a feeling of uh, feeling of place really help. Yeah, yeah, I really need to find like a good plugin for that because I always want to do it myself, but it's like so much work to do particle systems. Um, another one, like I don't want to do it, um, but especially like fog and stuff. I wish I could do that easier in games, because um, mm. like movies overuse like fog all the time, and it's just like free depths to see, you know. Um, and I mm -hmm. wish I could do that. But I don't know. I'll have to steal something, I guess. Um, the ambient particles. I just played Baba as you recently for the first time, and oh, yeah. it has a ton of particles all over the screen. It looks mm -hmm. really good. It makes yeah, it look it, like a lot more polished. Like I was noticing, I was like, if they didn't have the particles, this would just look like some generic web game. Yeah, too. Especially for two D games, I feel like this yeah. kind of expensiveness stuff is really important because it's really easy to make like yeah two D feels cheap, you know. Um, e mm -hmm. Even more so for like a grid-based uh, turn turn-based movement thing like Baba's, you you need you need you need that sort of like 
every little thing that you can squeeze juice out of needs to have juice squeezed out of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it's like um, adding like, um, it, uh, like official stuff. Like you boot up the game and there's like a text like, I haven't copyright a license, it's just some random legal notices and then like it starts <laughs> and then it says like a, a name first and like a logo and then, you know, adding like a trademark icon to your logo, <laughs> to your <laughs> logo of your game. <laughs> that makes things look expensive, in my opinion, because especially like, I don't know if you've ever played GTA, but like it starts with like a big text of like legal notices. And that's like, oh damn, this is a triple A game. <laughs> I want to make one of those you wouldn't download a car uh, ads for before my games. Oh yeah. You wouldn't like download a, a game, wait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, you, know what, uh, you know what adds to the expensiveness of games? What? Actually charging for your work. Yeah. <laughs> that's also too. Who does that? You're going to start... Yeah. talking about how indies don't charge enough mm. oh god um but yeah <laughs> actually um i don't i feel like a lot of people don't know this but adding a trademark um to your logo is like completely legal because um a trademark icon just means you haven't trademarked it which is kind of weird but <laughs> what <laughs> yeah because tm means um unregistered trademark um, <laughs> so you can just use it you can put it on literally everything you use <laughs> I'm gonna do that. Yeah. I'm trademark the game. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Vim, you wanna uh, you wanna do one of your questions? Sure. We can jump in. Uh, first one I had was, what games from your early years of gaming like still influence you today? So basically, what game did you play growing up that like from your very earliest years of playing games that to this day you still reference as kind of a core? Like, you may not use all of the pieces from it, but there's always some element of it that you always reference when you're making a game. Hmm. That's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, it's also really interesting. I, I can jump in on this one if you want me to go first, since I, I, since I thought of it. Yeah, I go know, ahead. That way you give you guys an extra second to think about it. For me, yeah, it's actually Mega Man. Uh, so okay. growing, growing up, like I'd say like my two most influential games were Mario and Mega Man, because I grew up during the NES mm -hmm. and Super NES eras, and didn't have a whole lot of games so a lot of those just like the you know three games four games that i had those are the ones i played ad nauseum mm -hmm. and mega yeah. man 2 specifically there's just to this day it's still like i i make i make a ton of platformers the you know the shooting mechanics the just different kinds of enemies getting like different level progressions with you know different ways of combining and playing in different ways. I also love the choosing your own order. I don't do that quite as much, but there's some part of it that mm. always kind of clicks mm -hmm. in and I always reference back. Like with my game, Monkeys with Guns, most people don't realize it, but one of the core uh, inspirations for that game was Mega Man mixed with like Mario Brothers arcade screen wrapping. <laughs> right. And, like, and then I eventually changed it to where mm. you can shoot in all directions. Originally, you could only shoot ahead of you the same way you can shoot with your buster. Um, so it was a lot of that uh -huh. kind of a thing where like, Mega Man just as a core, the concepts of, I've pulled that, like, you know, the difference of using power-ups that are better against different things, the difference of, you know, bringing in, having weird enemies at the end of each level or themed things are great. I don't get to use them as much for game jams because they require a lot more content creation, but it's always in the back of yeah. my mind of like, okay, how did Mega, how would, how would this have been handled in Mega Man? Hmm. Yeah. It's weird for me because, like, I only, I pretty much only played RTSs growing up, but I have, like, never had any interest in making them. And it's like, 
I don't know if I was more influenced by like books I read because I read a lot of like fantasy and sci-fi and that <clears throat> that feeling of like going on an adventure is always something like I really like and want to put in games um so I, I mean I would say books influence me more <laughs> maybe <laughs> Um, so choose your own adventure games. There you go. Choose your own adventure books. Uh, yeah, technically, yeah. careful. That's actually a that that is legitimately a a, a trademark copy. DM, DM, DM. <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah, yeah. Choo- that is, it is. Choose your own adventure is actually copyright. And you cannot call something a choose your own adventure. Yeah, and the the people what? who own the copyright even took down like a really small edge game for using uh, choose your own adventure in like the description, which is mm-hmm. crazy. What? I mean, in fair in fairness, when you have something that's semi generic or has become or is becoming a common term, if you don't defend your uh, your copyright enough, you actually can lose it because right. everyone else can point to the fact that you didn't stop this or that. It's uh, the same thing I believe happened with like you run into the same issues with like Band Aids and Kleenex. Those those kind of brands have become almost ubiquitous yeah. with what they make, and mm. they've almost kind of lost. Like they can still call it that, but you know. There, you got to be careful with those. Like even Band Aid is its own actual like, ter- it's a copywritten term as opposed to it should be you know it's what it's medicated adhesive strip or like that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. That's what it's supposed to be. Mm. Yeah. Oh well. Wow. And I, like, I heard at Google, no one calls it Google searches or Googles. They just say it's a search query because <laughs> they're like afraid of it losing trademark. I guess. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Copyright. I feel like um, every episode we could complain about copyright for like an hour, and I would still have <laughs> things to talk about. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, I mean yeah, games. I mean StarCraft. Also, I played a lot StarCraft and WarCraft. I played a lot of custom maps, and there was so much like creativity in those, mm. like really cool, innovative stuff. I guess because of the limitations of like making a game within a game, but also the like the resources of already having an engine and art assets and everything there for you. And you just like put your own thing with that. And I, I would say that influenced me a lot of like just the creative stuff in there. And it's kind of sad that those all kind of just died when those games became less popular and nobody took those into their own game areas and stuff. Mm. A lot of, uh... I don't know what elements though. A lot of the earliest games I remember playing actually are DOS games because uh, we were uh, we didn't have any like games consoles that are then we had some Game Boys when I was a kid but uh, so we mostly played like PC games and my dad had internet at work so he'd like download shareware versions of DOS games and he'd bring them home. <laughs> um, mm. But I I think and then and then like I. When I was uh, when I was a bit older, I played a bunch of flash games, and I think those sort of have a have a commonality to them that they're like these little, well, not always little, but like there's a bunch of them that are like a really wide variety of concepts, and they're all like every flash game you open, well, not every flash, the good flash games were all like really unique and interesting and different. I I like to. Mm-hmm. Hope. And, and the same with, like, the good DOS games. And, and I like to hope that my games carry through that spirit, at least. Yeah. But I, I don't think there's anything, like, explicitly in my games that I pull from a, from any other game I specifically played as a kid. Yeah, I guess you kind of do it subconsciously, you know. It gets put into mm-hmm. your brain, and then, like, you, you use it, but you don't realize it, I guess. Um, but uh, for me, it's definitely, I think, Gmod. Just like, uh, I guess, like Source Engine in general, 
I'm going to call it, yeah. because, like, Half-Life and stuff. And it's just, I don't know, I always, like, reference, like, that, that feeling of a Gmod map. Like, I try to, like, get that same feeling in, like, environments right. I do. Because there's something really, like, a very particular feeling about, like, Source Engine and, like, the kind of weird lighting it does. And I don't know, it's hard to explain. And it's almost, like, impossible to replicate. But it's, like, it feels so, I don't know, so textured almost. Um, and I, I always kind of reference that, like, subconsciously, I feel, when I'm, like, making a map, you know. Um, yeah. Did you play Team on on the Haunted or demo disc? No, I didn't. How you gonna do? <laughs> yeah, that, one, that one's cool. I didn't quite get it, but I think uh, I think if you played Gmod, you would, um, oh. because I I never actually got into Gmod myself. It mm. seems it it seems like there is something really cool there, but it's a bit past its time, and they're making I'm not Gmod gonna too, spend time so. on it now. <laughs> what they are making Gmod oh, too, so you know. Um, when that come out, comes out, you can get on the second train. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wonder if it'll be as good, or as creepy, I mean. Yeah. I feel like it's it's in Source too, and I think Source in general is just creepy. I don't know why. It's something about the lighting, I, I can't, I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah. Well, I mean, you look at, you look at all those, like, early Source games, or but a lot of a lot of those games have like very sterile like cold feeling environments so mm. they that that kind of like inherently is creepy yeah too it's something i don't know it's like indescribable because i i've actually like tried to search like what it is about the source engine and like how to replicate it in unity but <laughs> replicating source engine in unity is i think the only thing you can't google um, <laughs> um but yeah it's I'm, I'm not sure what it is but whenever you like you answer a game and it is in source engine you just know from like the start and i don't know why um it's really weird all right should we go to the next question yes sure. anyone else all right so let's see brogan that's my question uh so yeah my my question is um because i know i know vimlark you do a lot of game jams and I'm, I'm pretty sure all of us here do quite a few game jams um and i've hosted quite a number of game jams and i'm always thinking about this question how do you think we can actually encourage game developers to crunch less during game jams ah uh, game jams yeah i i do way too many game jams uh there's a common thought that i have a i have some sort of addiction problem which i'm not going <laughs> to say is wrong um <laughs> Like last week, I literally did three game jams at the same time, just because. <laughs> um, I think for, because I definitely I I do so many game jams at this point now. Like I can't crunch too hard anymore. I just do too many. It it, it it'll kill me. Um, yeah. So I what I've found is learning to understand scope. I think is the most important part. Like learning how to actually scope and plan your game, knowing what you're capable of doing in the time period you have. And unfortunately, there's no real way to like, there's no real way to understand that without doing game jams yeah, and just yeah. trying it out. Yeah, but I always encourage people, especially when they say it's their first game jam, scope small, make something that you think is way too easy for you and mm -hmm. then polish the heck out of it. If you... Um, Rami from Vlambeer has a really good talk called uh, about 444 and it's set up for the, or it's like for a 48 hour game jam, 
spend four hours on your mechanics and developing, and then 44 hours just polishing the crap out of it and making it shine. Mm. Now, right. normally mm. you're not going to spend that little time on the actual <laughs> development. A lot of times it takes longer than that. But what I usually, I take that to heart as getting your core mechanics done as quickly as possible, and you want to have them done ideally within the first like 10 hours of a game jam. Mm-hmm. You want to have the core yeah. mechanics, even if you don't have the levels in or any of that, you want to make sure that all of the mechanical aspects of your game are done as early as possible. Yeah. That way, mm-hmm. bugs that have, bugs that come up, like that helps in the crunch time later when you know, you're dealing with adding art and particles and polish and sound and all this stuff. That's going to cause enough problems as it is. If you also have to deal with, oh crap, now my enemies don't work? Like, you know, that yeah. just, it, yeah. it, takes, it takes it to a whole other level mm-hmm. of stress. <laughs> That that's interesting, and I think I think it's very clear that you like do a lot of game jams. Um, but I, I'm curious, like precautions are like uh, rules that not not quite rules, but like suggestions that game jam hosts can make to help help uh, developers try and actually actually do less crunch. Is yeah, more I think my like- angle on it. The other big one is just, I mean, God, sleep. Like, don't, don't, don't not stop working. The thing is, is if you don't take the time to take a break, take a rest, eat any of that kind of a thing, you're inherently going to be giving yourself more problems later because you're going to make more mistakes because you're tired, hungry, grumpy, or whatever. So taking out the 30 minutes now to go and eat or, you know, taking the couple hours to go and get some sleep will save that time on the back end when you're not making stupid mistakes because you weren't paying it. You're not as sharp as you were if you had you rested <laughs> or eaten. Yeah. Um, yeah, for the, I think the popular thing to do, especially for like a host, um, is to do like a month game jam, but like you do it in a week or something, or it's like a week game jam, but you have to do it in two days or something. But then it's like, um, I mean, it's just like you have 48 hours-ish, but you have a week yeah. to finish it. So, like, you don't have, like, your deadline isn't as as strict as it is. I think that's, like, a popular one. But um, for me personally, um, when it's, like, a 48-hour game jam, I try to scope for a game that takes six hours to make. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. like, usually goes into, like, eight hours because you add some stuff to it. And I feel if you work more than eight hours... Like on a weekend, because you're probably doing it on a weekend. Um, in two days, then you know you're working too much, probably. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like a, a game jam. It's still like in your free time or whatever. I don't think you should be, you know, yeah. spending six hours, eight hours a day behind your like, computer <laughs> on like a free day. Um, I don't know. Um, I just try to make really small games, but I guess that's like the the general advice. But um, yeah. I don't know. I feel like the the best formats for jams are either like one day or like less than a day or one week or longer. Because like once you do like the weekend thing, that that encourages people to like, oh, let's get hype and I'm going to stay up all night. I'm not going to sleep at all. Whereas if it's a week, it's like, well, I have to sleep and I have to eat. It's like Mm. just the nature of the time allotted makes you have to be healthier. And also, yeah, because and, doing one yeah. in, a, in, a, in only a day sounds like really strict, but if you think about it, it stops. Yeah, but then it's like, I up. can't sleep, I can't stay up, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's just one day, so there's no way I can do more. Mm. Yeah, you I, know? I've, I've done, I think I've done two uh, in-person jams that were like, I think, eight hours each. And those were actually mm-hmm. pretty cool, because like, you kind of know, you're, you you don't say, oh, I'll get up extra early tomorrow and and 
get straight to work and I'll get this extra bit done and you never you never like make assumptions about the future when you're in those jams because you know I only have two hours I need to realistically mm-hmm. scope for two hours yes yeah um yeah I always like to um when I'm doing in-game like in-person game jams I always like to spend like the first day just like hanging out and I don't know, going outside. Mm, mm-hmm. And then, like, you have, like, a shared experience, which you can then, like, build a game off yeah. of. Yeah. You know? That, um, that sounds like a problem for a one-day in-person jam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one day, and we spend the first day just hanging out. I've, I've never done a multi-day game jam in person. Mm, we used I, to do a... I used to always do... My buddies did a 12-hour game jam once a month uh, at a local esports arena here when we could, you know, go outside. And it was it was fantastic. Like, it was my favorite thing to go do. Just It was 12 it hours. Really every fun. every hour we added a scope creep thing so you had to add more to your game. <laughs> every hour is a challenge. Um, and it's just a blast to go and just hang out with a bunch of people and just crank out a game in a day. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, too. Yeah. The last um, in-person game jam I did um, was before, um, you know, the end of the world. And... Um, <laughs> It was really fun because we just like we played blackjack and like scrabble and we hanged out went to a museum we ate something and then the next day we were like oh we should make something and then we started and we're like oh i give up and that was a pretty good game jam (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i did uh i did one like global game jam where i like pulled an all-nighter because i had i had a i had a college exam uh i think in the morning of the first day of global of the global game jam because for some reason they scheduled it on a on a weekend mm. and uh so i like rushed over from the college exam and then i didn't sleep for like 20 something 30 hours and uh it was not fun and i wasn't happy with the game anyway <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah I, I i kind of decided not to do that again and then mm. Next time, next time I decided to try and do a global game jam, I like the first night after coming out of the like uh, af- after like the theme was announced, coming out of the uh, location it was at, something really traumatic happened, which I won't go into. But like, I haven't done a in person game jam <laughs> since, <laughs> and I wonder why. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I've never gone to like um, like an actual like in person game jam. Where it's like organized in like a location and like you can like stay there and there are like other people you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to do it at least once. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think we did one one at school though, that was pretty fun. But like you know everyone, so it's kind of different, I guess. Oh yeah. yeah so I, I had a, a couple of my college. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was. I have the problem of always doing game jam solo because I'm sick in the head. I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I actually, think. Well, there's also the fact that I use a different engine that no, that most people don't ever use. So it's oh, like I either get to be yeah. an artist or I mm. don't, or I have to do it myself because, mm. or I'm the only coder. There's that kind of problem yeah. too. To be, mm. to be fair, I think it's more insane to be working on a game together for a game jam than alone. Because they have to like manage over, over someone two else people, and yeah. make a game. It's like too much work. <laughs> I've done a few, uh, most, mostly Ludum Dares I've done with people and I've actually found it a lot a lot less stress because like especially mm. if you have someone else who does programming you can be like i really don't want to implement this ui system and they're like i i love doing ui or whatever and it's like mm. oh perfect so I'll, I'll i'll do the shooting you do the ui or whatever and it actually kind of works that great in some mm. ways and then 
I've also done ones where I'm the only programmer and like I've had an artist and a musician say and those are really fun because I get to like implement someone else's art and like mm-hmm. we bounce back and forward the game and like it it really it's really motivating to actually program if you keep seeing the progress on someone else's like work yeah it's good that's, that's good. I do always do it with sounds um someone who does the sound because that like makes sense and it's like separate enough but like i feel like with art i got like frustrated because it's like i can't program something without art and then it's like i need to wait on their art or like i want to do it myself and then it's like i don't know maybe i'm just bad with people either <laughs> um <laughs> but um i should try it again like another program but the last time i did it really like didn't work out but um you have to like find a way to separate your work enough that's like the biggest issue i feel um Mm-hmm. I'm kind of. I was kind of reminded earlier of Jabril's video where he went to a global game jam and he was like, "I had this idea for a game, but then I realized I didn't want to just go to this event, this big event, and just sit in a corner by myself. So I found some other people to make a game with." Yeah, I was like, "Oh yeah, that's a good attitude. Yeah, <laughs> be yeah. a lot funner." Uh, let's see. Should we go to the next question, or anyone yeah. still want to talk about this? All right. So Vimlark, you're up for next question. Okay. Uh, next question. What common game genres would you consider to be your blind spot? So the games, like game genres you've played the least of or just have had the least experience with or exposure to over the years that most people are like, hey, do you love this kind of game? And you're like, nope, I don't, I just don't touch them. <laughs> Actually, um, it's funny that Miz mentions RTS games and that they played it a lot because I've yeah. never played an RTS game or any strategy game in general. And every time I picked it up, it's like, oh, you have to click things? Oh, this is boring. And I just <laughs> shut it off. <laughs> I, um, but I want to like try and make a strategy game because I never play them. I want to see what I do, but it'll probably suck. So, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I haven't, I haven't played a strategy game since I was like a kid. Um, mm. Because any time after that, like I, I played Age of Empires a bunch when I was... Uh, younger but like anytime after that that i've tried to play any strategy game other than maybe advanced wars i've been like brain no work mm, yeah <laughs> also i did play age of empires that's maybe like the only one i did but um i just like the sounds they made when you did stuff but like <laughs> so it's just like making farms and then they said like mandat and, and i thought it was really funny and then after a while the person i was playing was you came with like huge army and I had like two fans <laughs> and they killed me. <laughs> um, let's see, for me, I have no experience with dating simulators, I guess. Or Sims, typical like Sim kind of games. I don't really have any experience with. But it is kind of fascinating just like when I see people who get really into them and like those games have just like built up a life of like this virtual character in this fake world. And like, you actually live a day to day life is like really interesting to me. Mm, yeah. I don't know if I'd ever actually make that. It looks I, like so much work. I love the Sims, but I usually give up like an hour after finishing building my cool house. I, I just <laughs> like build a cool house and then it's like, well, that was fun. Oh yeah. Exactly. The same with me for the Sims. Um, yeah, just open the game and do like the cheat to get infinite money. I build a house, and, <laughs> I set it on fire. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in. I mean, actually, for me, there's a lot of game genres I didn't play because I went from like NES, Super NES, and even in that era, I didn't play RPGs. Like, I never played Legend of mm. Zelda as a kid or right. any of that because I didn't have them. And I only had access to like, you know, blockbuster rentals. So you don't rent an RPG that's going to take you too long because you can't beat it in the weekend. So <laughs> no. I never got those kind of games back then. Unless so you're really up, dedicated. Yeah, and I just, you know, it's just a lot. So growing up, like, I didn't play a lot of, uh, a lot of like RPGs. So even to this day, I'm super, like, other than Pokemon, I think those are the only games that I played that were like RPGs for the most part, especially turn-based RPGs. So I'm really, I'm really like lost when it comes to like RPG things. Also, same with uh, yeah, most most PC specific platforms like RTS especially, mm. and a lot of the early yeah. Sim stuff I didn't play a lot of either because I didn't. We barely had a computer when I was a kid. I didn't really get a main computer and like like we didn't get internet until I was in high school. So <laughs> like I was I had early console games and then after that yeah I just I didn't see a whole lot. So I'm experiencing it mm -hmm. now, which is a lot of fun. So I get to go through a lot of games now. I'm like, yeah. I don't know this genre. Let's go try this one out, um, which I find interesting. I, th <laughs> I think my like real answer to this, and it's a weird one because I have, I have played like a reasonable amount of this type of game, but like I just, first person shooters never clicked with me. I don't know why. Uh -huh. Like in theory, I get the idea. Well, any, any sort of shooter, but more specifically first person. And every time I try to play like a first-person shooter, I'm, I feel like I'm missing some key skill that everyone else who plays first-person shooters has. <laughs> are are like, you trying to play console or PC? PC. Okay. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> I can't. I, I can't do first-person shooters with a controller. Yeah. I have no, to have I, a mouse and keyboard. I, I would be like, <laughs> I would be even worse with a controller. But like, I don't know what it is. But not, like even non-competitive stuff, I'm bad at somehow. Mm. And is it just that you're bad at it, or it just doesn't appeal to you at all? Well, it's I'm I'm bad at it, so it becomes unappealing, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Like, I don't I don't want to buy a new first person shooter game when I know I'm yeah. just like gonna not get through the first level without like dying fifty times. <laughs> True. It's interesting because I always thought like um, first person shooters were like the most um, just instinctual best best feeling games, you know. And I don't mean that yeah. as like a violence thing. It's just like I feel like the mouse was like made for aiming and clicking, you know. So that's like uh, it uses that. It uses the mouse in like the most um, logic logical way that any game genre does. So it yeah. just feels the most natural, you know. Like, um, but yeah. The thing yeah. is, I don't I don't dislike like first person controls. Like I'm I I play a lot of games with first person controls. But it's some it's something to do with like the the action. I think like the I get flustered in the moment probably, but mm. uh, like because I I love like I love games that even use the same like concept of looking and pointing and clicking. Like there's mm. there's a photography game Umarangi Generation that I absolutely adore, and that's that's basically like you're looking at a thing and shooting it. I mean, <laughs> it is, it's, yeah. it's just it's just abstracted down and like slower and mm. with that i can totally do it but if it's like fast-paced i'm just like no no chance <laughs> yeah see what i mean yeah it's interesting mm. now let's see when you're asking this question were was there any like game development or like i don't know what can we learn from our blind spots kind of 
also yeah, really so curious kind of like what, uh, yeah, I guess is there any ones that you like are out there that you're like I don't know this one. What can I you know is is the, is there any that you're interested in learn looking more into? For instance, for me, the one that comes up for me that I get asked about constantly is horror games, and I don't I don't mm. play horror games. Like I don't I'm not a mm -hmm. horror fan in general. I kind of look yeah. like I should be, but I don't particularly watch horror movies. I don't like it's just it's not a genre I care yeah. about in any medium. But it's one right. of those ones where now I'm, I've got this real thought of like, how would I handle a horror game? Because my big thing is making <laughs> things cute. Like that's a, it's yeah. just a thing yeah. that I like yeah. to do. How, how can you take that without doing the typical, you know, make something that's cute, creepy, just on its own? Because that's, you can flip that a little bit, but yeah, I just, there's a little bit of interesting, like, is there any particular, are any of those genres one that you're interested in of like, how would you approach it to possibly tweak it a little bit? Mm. It's actually funny that you say that because I'm I'm kind of working on like a cute horror game, um, but it's not creepy at all. It's just more like it's, it's it's like really cute, but just like the theme is horror, you know. It's like bones yeah. and skeletons and 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 blood and, mm -hmm. and corpses, but it's all really cute, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, I I feel like your game is like horror culture. If that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Like horror tropes, but it's a cute game. I, I think uh I think the like genre that I would like to learn from the most I think is actually as Miss said like dating sims and visual novels because I think I want to I want to tell more stories with my games and I think if I'm gonna do that I might as well learn from the place where that art has been honed the most. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, I feel the same way about that. Yeah, I've never touched a dating sim, and I mean they're like they're incredibly popular so there's something about them that's got to be entertaining right yeah yeah it's not just i don't think it's just that people are losers and lonely or something it's that, it's that there's something to them <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think a lot of it comes to just i mean just the general action interaction like i don't play i've never played the harvest moons the animal crossings mm -hmm. any of those but i picked up a uh, stardew valley for my wife because my wife's not a big game mm. player and she got hooked on it, and watching her play, I was like, oh, that actually looks really cool. And I, I mean, yeah. we, our entire family had a deep dive on Stardew Valley <laughs> for about three months, where it's like, that's what we all did. We all played Stardew yeah. Valley, like, yeah. hardcore. And the that was probably one of the first games where it's like, oh, wait, I can meet all the people, I can talk, and I've actually, I was, I was interested in it, actually, which is very rare for me in a game with a lot of dialogue. Uh, yeah, I, I relate to that. I just got into Stardew also had like the same experience sorry what were you saying Bri? I, I was just gonna say on the topic of uh dating sims there's a youtube video i really recommend you watching watching um and it's it's a really long one but it's uh it's tim rogers uh on the youtube channel action button he did a review of a game called tokimaki memorial which is like the first dating sim that was only released in japan and it was made by the people who made like one of the early castlevania games um, and the, it's a really interesting the, deep dive. Is that the um like the video essay that's like two hours long? Or like six uh, yeah, hours it's long? it's the video essay that's six hours long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can't say but I watched it. With, but I, I, I haven't close. I haven't watched all of it, but it's really worth watching some of. Like, mm. he's also just a really entertaining guy in in my experience. Uh, I mean, if you make a six-hour video about anything. Um, it must be uh, incredibly interesting. Yeah, yeah. and it has 465,000 <laughs> views. <laughs> oh my god. 
This looks really long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. Next. Should we go to the next? Uh, is that me? I think. Yep, that's you. Oh, yeah. Okay, so what, what helped you progress the most as a game designer? Like something you learned or something you, something you were taught? I don't know. Just something that helped you progress the most. Uh, cool. Actually, for me, the biggest thing that helped me progress the most wasn't actually something that I learned or was taught. It was watching people play my games. So mm -hmm. I guess learn, like learning the importance of playtesting. Uh, early on, I did a lot of, again, big on game jams, right? I did a lot of game jams. And there's usually a lot of the game jams will have their smaller streamers out there that'll play the games from the jam with a face cam. And the difference between yeah. what between seeing someone play your game versus seeing someone play your game with a face cam, or if you could see someone play your game in person, uh, at the in the early days of me starting out when we could still go in public, I did a lot of convention. Like I'm lucky to be in an area where we have a pretty active indie game dev community. So between like conventions, game dev meetups, uh, playtest nights, those kinds of things, I had a fair amount of people playing my games and being able to watch their faces, and mm. seeing someone's face, I think is a hundred percent more valuable than anything they'll ever tell you so no matter what feedback they give you watching their face while you play again not to be creepy about it but like seeing the expressions <laughs> that they make yeah again it's it sounds kind of creepy but seeing the expressions people you can't hide that so when someone's frustrated yeah. they may tell you no it's okay but you can see in their face they're getting they're getting bugged or they're getting you know like i mean <laughs> the number of times i have sat and cringed and just like my whole body is kind of like you know, as I'm watching people struggle with something that I thought was completely understandable and super easy to know how to do. Yeah. <laughs> completely changed my perspective on making games for players. Uh, so, like, yeah. if you can get playtests from people, one of the biggest advices I can have is if you're making a game and you have playtesters playtesting your game and they're willing to give you video of them playtesting, mm -hmm. see if they'll throw mm -hmm. a face cam on. Be like, you know, you won't show it to anybody, but get it with a face cam on mm -hmm. and it will increase the amount of information you get, like, tenfold. That's, yeah. that's really neat yeah. it kind of reminds me of um stephen king wrote a book on writing it's called on writing and it's like how to write i guess how to write well and learn how to write well and one of those things was when you get feedback from people on your writing most people don't know how to write and they're not going to be able to give good advice like if you just ask someone to you know can you give me feedback on this they're going to give terrible advice and they're going to read it wrong too. They're not going to read it like a normal person would if you ask them for feedback. So instead what he would, said to do was just, he would like have his wife read it and he'd just tell her, just read it. And if you get bored, tell me where you got bored. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was it. And so she would just read through and tell, and then you'd be like, okay, so this area is where normal people get bored playing the game. <laughs> because if you ask people for feedback, like on your game or something, they don't know, they don't know enough about making games to give good feedback the yeah. best they just know that if they don't enjoy it or not mm -hmm. and so just by like watching and seeing if they're enjoying it that's the best feedback i think uh um, i think there's plenty of people out there who are willing to even even though they don't know about making games they are willing to tell you exactly what you need to do yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> they're never telling you the right thing mm. it's interesting but i really do think um, um playtesting is like important but I, I, every time it always like takes me until someone playtests my game until I realize it is, and then like while they're playtesting, it's like oh you're playing the game well, and then it takes me at least like a day before I realize okay they were right, you know. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's actually funny because um, when I made like No Players Online, my original intention was just to make a scary game. So um, the original game ended with a jump scare, 
Um, and <laughs> it was kind of a smart jump scare because the game stopped, uh, went to your desktop, and then like a jump scare happened on your desktop. I thought that was neat, but nobody else thought that was neat, or like most people took off their headsets before they realized there was going to be jump scare. Uh, <laughs> um, and everyone was just like, oh, it's just a jump scare, you know? Um, and I was like, yeah, but it's supposed to just be a jump scare game. Um, and then when on my way home, I was like, okay, guess I guess I'll change the game. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I think the thing that uh, that helped me progress the most as a game de game designer is actually uh, I went through a period of about a year where I made games in a tool called Bitsy that mm. is like super minimal and it's it's like turn based, tile ba based, one bit art style. And it's, it's kind of clunky, but it's surprisingly flexible. And working out how to make interesting games within that minimal framework really helped me, like, I think going forward to make interesting games outside of that. Um, and I think, like, I still want to get better at writing, but that really helped me improve my writing because, like, dialogue was one of the few things you could rely on in Bitsy. Uh... I, def I definitely think like that has helped me uh, see games differently and and helped me work on different on better games after that point. Hmm. So just working on like a minimal engine and then working your way up to more I guess allowing and or more options engines yeah. with more options. Well, I mean, I was working on stuff in Unity at the same time, but like just like. I, I had a focus on Bitsy for about a year and it really helped, I think. Mm, that's interesting. Cause I feel like with stuff like Pico 8, it's so much harder to get into and like people would be able to learn as much. Yeah. Well, Pico 8 is also very focused on like the technical aspects. Like you can make a platformer in Pico 8, unless you're very dedicated to doing repetitive tasks, you can't make a platformer in mm -hmm. uh, Bitsy. You can only make like one set type of game. And you have to work out how to play with the perspective and like collision and stuff to try and get different perspectives out of it. So yeah, that's an interesting uh, one. Oh, sorry. That's an interesting one because especially for like someone like me who comes from like, I'm kind of one of the weird ones in the whole YouTube game dev world and uh, not as much on Twitch, but like, cause I'm not a developer. I, I'm, I don't, I don't consider myself a programmer. I'm not, that's not my core of what I do. I'm a designer. I want to make experiences for people to play. The yeah. programming is kind of a means to an ends. It's just something I have to do because, you know, I can't afford mm -hmm. to pay somebody else to do it for me all the time when, for every ridiculous idea that I have. <laughs> so the concept of like starting light and kind of building up, like I kind of started semi-light and I hit an area where I'm like, okay, I'm good here, but I don't really have a whole lot of desire to progress and get like crazy better at development itself. Yeah. Like personally, again, that's that's a personal thing. If other yeah. people want to do that, like that's that's definitely what you want to do. But it's really interesting to see how the way people value different parts of the developmental process. So I think when you get into it, that's another thing is like learn what your goal is, because I think there's a lot of people that get in wanting to be designers. You know, they're more artistic minded. They want to, you know, they want to create the experience. They want to create like how people interact and that kind of a thing. But they get so bogged down in the code and how to write a particular thing and making something proper and yeah it's, it's interesting i think that, that you, can hinder you well it's interesting okay. that you say that because like for me the actual the actual design is implementing it you know i mean um i feel like the 
the actual game design and like is mostly in like the details you know like how much the thing squishes and like and like the the feed the exact feedback you get from stuff that's like the actual game design to me i in my you know in my experience and i feel like you really get to do the game design if you're like programming the game you know um mm. it kind of goes both ways because i mean if you're working with a developer like i'm working with a developer on my one game monkeys with guns now because the game kind of grew in scope to something i couldn't do and, you know, he's programming tools for me to go in and be able to handle that kind of a stuff. You know, it's like we have, you know, moving platforms, right? Well, I've got an, I've got an animation curve for that now, so I can choose mm. exactly how that moves, but I don't, mm. I don't know how any of the code works. For oh yeah, for end. sure. But, um, so as a designer, you can, I mean, but yeah, you exactly like you're saying though, if you want to get into that nitty gritty and you're the only one working, you do have to start learning it. Yeah, too. But I, I, I think it's, you know, it's more a question of tools, but I don't think, um, I don't think you're necessarily like a much of a different person. I mean, at, in the end, you're still um, indirectly programming, you know, the speed of the um, of the platform. And I, I guess even for programmers, okay, I, I, I think there are a lot of people too that are in it for the programming. But like for me, I like doing the programming, but it's still just a means to an end to choosing how long it takes for the platform to move, you know. Um, so for me, that's kind of the same thing, you know, kind of combines together. Um, yeah. I totally agree with you on that, except in the, a lot of occasions you do run into the issue where if you're in a group of game devs all chatting like in Discord or something like that, mm. there's, I'd say, probably 50% of the time I have no idea what people are saying. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I know, like, people go in, especially since I don't, like, if you're a non-Unity person, especially, you, mm. you do run yeah. into feeling a little bit like, I okay. I mean, there's a lot of just aspects of the popular game dev culture that I just don't really touch on because I don't use Unity. Yeah, too. But it's yeah. it's interesting because um, I really don't want to call myself a programmer because I don't want to like associate myself with people who like make their own engines and stuff. You know. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, that, that's not programming. That's just insanity. Those yeah, guys are. <laughs> I mean, more power to them. But good God, yeah. insane. <laughs> I'm, all, I'm always worried that when when I tell people I'm a programmer, they'll think I, I care about the code. You know, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I have a computer science degree, and I don't know half the stuff people talk about, like when they're you know, yeah. programmers. Not I... even half, no less. <laughs> right, I'm good, saying, so it's not just I, me then. I, I, yeah. I, think, <laughs> like, I, I think the thing is that with programming, it's so broad, and there's so many like different things you have to learn to know everything about it, that if you're in a group with programmers, even if you're like 10 years experience programming, there's going to be something you don't know about that someone mentions. Because mm. everyone has to, like, at some point specialize or focus on certain things. Mm. Yeah, true. And there also are just generally a lot of people who are in games, but they don't really care about the game. They just care about the code. Um, you know, like, mm. especially mm -hmm. people working in, like, the lower, um, low-end stuff. Um, I don't know. Like... It's not... what's, the, what's the name? You know, like, the really, like, nitty-gritty, like, how to render a square yeah. on a box, you know. Um, I think there's, I think there are actually just generally a lot of people that like setting up like the systems and the logic of it, and they don't really care about how fast the player moves, you know. <laughs> Power to them, to be honest. <laughs> They're the ones yeah. making Unity, you know. <laughs> uh, let's see. 
I was I was uh, just gonna say one more point on that because uh, Bimlark mentioned that the developer he's brought on board has like made tools for him, and that's mm. actually that's actually something that's really helped me progress as well is learning how to make my own tools. Because there was a long time where I would just like grab whatever free thing I could get off the internet, or I could like do it all manually. But now I actually know how to automate a bunch of stuff, and it's it's made making making content for games a lot easier mm. <laughs> yeah it's true definitely and um like, do you know the the people like the game devs who live on a boat i always forget their name it's something rabbits i think a hundred rabbits um yeah yeah but they're, they're like really obsessed with making their own tools and when i hear them like talk about it and like how passionately they are like you should make your own photoshop um yeah you know it's so it's so <laughs> inspiring but i don't think i could do it but it is yeah. really inspiring. <laughs> I, I could never go. I could never go down to that level. But I'm definitely gonna uh, like make tools to spawn in objects in a certain pattern or whatever. Mm. Yeah, too. Uh, yeah, I found them on Vice. There's an article on them. Yeah, they actually uh, do oh. live on a boat. It's really cool. They just make like tools <laughs> and games on a boat. <laughs> That's crazy. I wonder what the internet's like. Um, no. They don't have an internet. So, what the hell? Yeah, and that's that's probably like the biggest reason why they make all their tools. <laughs> oh, <'Cause>... okay, maybe. <laughs> um, oh, for for me, the thing that helped me was, I mean, I was kind of in the same situation as him. Like, I did a ton of game jams for like years. I did game jams and small stuff, and like I would get comments on my games. People would like critique them in the comments and stuff, and it was kind of helpful. But it wasn't until I. The big thing for me was when I started my four devs, one art kit series, because it was like I made this game and then I had to watch like four, no, three other people play it from start to finish. And they were game developers and they're critiquing it as they played it. And so it was like and I would see exactly what they struggled with, where they struggled with. Like I kind of watched people like small streamers, like you said, who, you know, did jam games like I'd seen a couple times and play my games. But usually it was like they'd play for like two minutes and then go to the next game. This was like the first time I could actually see people play from start to finish, people who played games. Because I had also had friends who would play my games, but they didn't really play games ever. So they would struggle with like, just like mouse look or something was like a foreign concept to them. Mm. But yeah, just seeing like videos of like three different people playing a game from start to finish, critiquing it. And then the game I made for that was actually like pretty good. I had done some stuff I didn't normally do, like boss fights and stuff. And like the comments like i got a lot of feedback on that and it was just kind of like incidental somebody like reviewed how said that the game had a really satisfying like finish to it or something had a, like a good sense of completion and i was like that like stuck out to me and i was like i now i always like reference that one game i made because i learned mm -hmm. so much just from watching people play it seeing where they struggled and what they liked and then also the comments that like praised these certain aspects and i'm like okay i always want to put those things that worked because i know they work and i've seen you know great examples of them working and then so yeah just watching people and i guess youtube having a bunch of people critique like tons of people <laughs> too much people yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah it, the youtube ones gets a little rough especially the more people that start watching it just becomes like you know, add this, add this. It's like that you've missed the entire point of everything our, I was doing. So it become kind of hard to listen to. But I yeah. do think the as the process of making a devlog 
has been invaluable to me specifically because mm-hmm. I try to make a devlog mm-hmm. almost every game I make. Even if you don't make a video about it, even if you just do a writing, having to put your ideas and why, like justify your decisions in sentence structure, not just bullet points or not just in your head, actually have yeah. to write it out in the way that another person could understand them makes you see a lot of just misconceptions and fallacies you had in your own mind of like, you're like, yeah, so then you would do this. And then you read the sentence back. And you're like, wait, why would I do that? I have like, why did I, <laughs> why did I think that works and makes sense? You know what I mean? It's things like that that I found to be really valuable. And then moving forward, it's like next time it's like, okay, well, last time I tried to do that. All right. What if I tweak it this way this time and see how it works yeah. now? I never thought of that. That's really, that's a really good point. That's really well put. It's funny that you yeah, said just... Miz as someone who does dev blogs. <laughs> <laughs> I never even thought of it. I just do them for, for marketing so people look at my games. I never even so thought of it like that. You just do it for the money you sell out. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought, for me, that was a big, re- like when I started, um, because I started originally, my first devlogs were really um, for my Monkeys with Guns game, like getting prepped up for a uh, playtest night that we were doing. So I was doing like a weekly devlog, like here's what I did this week and here's why I made these decisions. And I really learned a lot about the game and why I made decisions I did and, you know, tweak some things just because, you know, if you have to sit and justify your reasoning for doing something, not against like, not because like, you know, someone's like attacking it, but just if you can't justify why you've done something, why are you putting the time and effort into doing it, right? Like, if you mm-hmm. don't know yeah. why you've added your... Like, if you're going to add in some sort of death mechanic... I realized this actually doing... When I did the four-game devs challenge, uh, four-game devs jam off the same arc kit, in my game, I put in a stamina bar because that's what you do when you have a running mechanic. And as I was making the video and talking about it, I realized this is completely useless and unnecessary. There was no reason for me to put this in here <laughs> other than it being annoying now. Yeah, there's so many um, just little things like that. bars out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just little things like that that kind of make you, you know, and if I had never gone back and made my own video about it, I, or, you know, written a script, like, or written a thing, actually just thinking about all of the aspects I added in, I would have just blindly moved on, you know, and not even thought about the fact that, hey, I put a stupid stamina bar in there, and I probably would have put a dumb stamina bar in something else later. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, let's see. Last question, I guess. Do you have to go at two for the stream? Uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, so it should be in about like an hour. I gotta go. Oh, okay. Oh, you got okay. I start. I, I start. At, I start at noon. It's ten fifty my time. So. Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, cool. Um, you want to go with your last question? Sure. Okay. So last question: What part of the user slash player experience? I'm big on I, like in advertising stuff. I I do UX a lot, so I I go by user experience a lot. But in games, it would be player experience. What part do you consider to be the most important? So what aspect of when a player first sits down to play your game, what do you want, what do you want, what is the most important thing to kind of pull them in and get them engaged and lost in your world? Um, for me, it's definitely just like um, the consoles because it's like the first thing they do. And if if it just feels right, then they're like, oh, if they like jump around yeah. the character a few times, they're like, oh, this feels really nice. Because so that's like also like important to me. And I feel like that's like that's what I that's what I want to get right, you know. Because then I can, I don't have to put much effort into the rest of the game because they're already <laughs> satisfied, you know. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. And it's just um, it it's all about that first impression, I guess. And if you don't make a menu, you have to put the controls as the first impression. So. <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I was actually going to say something along the lines of what Adam said, which is not not necessarily controls, but controls lead into it, which is just like general game feel. Mm. If you if you can make the tiniest thing, like the tiniest, like simplest game idea, but polish it up so much, people are going to have fun with it. Like you don't have to make a complex game idea if it's if you're aiming if you're aiming to make people have fun. You don't have to make a complex game idea. You just have to make it feel fun to play. Yeah, exactly. Um, have you seen the like, cubism? Uh, cubism. No. The, art, the style? art style. No, the VR game. No. Oh, no. oh no. it's it's really simple. It's just you put blocks into a shape, um, and that's like the entire game. But um, it's really really juicy and just feels really nice and like minimalist, and it's so good just because. You put it up and like it makes like a little sound when you press the button and it's like oh it's so good and it's, it's so simple but it's so good it's <laughs> this looks like pain 3d a 3d spatial awareness pain yeah exactly but um it's so soothing because every time um if you're like doing the puzzles and it takes you longer than a minute um to like do something or like make progress it starts playing like really soothing piano music so it's like <laughs> oh i get rewarded for sucking at this game <laughs> um let's see for me the most important part of the player's experience it used to be a unique experience like i was like i was obsessed with innovative mechanics right doing something completely unique no one had ever done before i wanted it to be so like when somebody plays my game they're just like wow I've never experienced this kind of mechanic. This is so unique. But now I've been way more focused on satisfaction, I guess, that feeling I was mentioning earlier. Just like the overall, like when you finish it and you feel satisfied, it's like has the good, like the nice arc, the satisfaction, or the uh, good intro, and then like the challenges, and then the big final challenge, and then it closes in like a nice way, and you just feel like, ah, yeah. like that was a satisfying experience. And that's mm. kind of, that's my main thing now. Um, yeah, I'm so bad at endings. All of my all my games are just close. <laughs> <Same. laughs> I think I think it's interesting though. You mentioned first about like the unique ideas, um, because it's all well and good having a really unique idea for your game, but it's, it's not worth anything if like nobody can get past the first minute, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's the big one where people get into like you know I want to make something unique. It's like okay, but. You need to have a reason for making something unique. There's a lot of people that will just change a common thing mm. just to be unique about it. But tropes are actually yeah. not a bad thing. Like tropes are there for a reason because they are something that is commonly understood amongst a group of people. So you can use those to your advantage to tweak something else and give a different experience. The problem is, is when you change too many standard things all at the same time and then the player has no idea what they're doing. At least in my mm -hmm. opinion. That's where I run into a lot yeah. of issues. Because again, I play a lot of game jam games, a lot of new people's games, a lot of first games, a lot of all over the place games. And the general issue is like, you know, when you change something that's common, along with having a bunch of other stuff that are different too, you've now made the person, made the player have to think so much harder just to play your game that mm -hmm. a lot of people will end up closing it and bouncing off because it's just too difficult. Like there's, you know what I mean? It, it takes too much mental bandwidth to understand, oh, the controls are different than I'm used to, to do something that I am normally used to doing. And then there's other weird things happening too. So it really can throw you for a loop, I feel. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I think what you're saying about your devlogs as well, like having a, like looking back and wondering what was the reason why I did that. It's actually really important to getting to that point where you're not just changing things for no reason. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I think justifying why you change something. Yeah. And I'd say for me to the answer, this is basically a, uh, uh, clarity and a clear goal from the get-go. Like making sure that the players actually understand what the heck they're supposed to be doing. There's a lot of games that just kind of drop you in and like they expect you to just figure it out. And no, <laughs> like to me, yeah. that's the yeah. number one way of like, I'm just going to turn your game off because I don't know what's happening. Um, people, I think people got so hooked up on like the old school games of like, yeah, you just explored and you found things. Well, that <laughs> was great when there was only a handful of games out there, but there are so many games out there nowadays. Nobody has time <laughs> to just like, I don't know. There's the concept of, oh, it takes 20 minutes before it gets good is like completely baffling to me. Yeah. Why, w why would yeah. anybody give you 20 minutes? Like time is the most valuable resource that anybody has. It's the only thing we can't get more of in our life I, at all. Like I think... we can't. I think a trick a lot of like longer games pull is in, in, even even if it wouldn't be good for 20 minutes, they ship that 20 minutes an hour forward and give you a really compelling first hour. <laughs> yeah, give give, give mm -hmm. the players some, some sort of like core goal uh, that they understand early game. You can shift it and adjust it later, but if you can't really get hooked onto it in the first couple of minutes... I mean, honestly, I'd say the first like minute or two, and this is me coming from advertising. So I've worked in advertising for the last 10 years and in advertising, I get one second. Like we consider it a success if you stay on the ad for more than a second. Yeah, um, that, that, that is, that is a metric of success for me. Normally, you know, you send this thing out. Cool. It's seen by hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people. And if they stay on it for longer than a second and 1% do that, that's considered a success most of the time. Yeah. let alone getting them to actually push a button that you want them to. So that aspect of guiding a player to do the things and experience the thing you're creating for them to enjoy has to be, I know a lot of people don't want to do control. They don't like, uh, they don't like control text. They don't want to do this because it feels handholdy, but you kind of have to hold someone's hand to show them the fun first. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. why do people give you that amount of time to find it themselves? In my opinion. Mm. Yeah. I think uh, there's a very good argument to be made for making sure you can, like, have a concise vertical slice of the overall gameplay of your game as the first section that the player actually plays. Like, you, you should ideally show them most of gameplay-wise what the game has to offer. Not mechanics-wise, but, like, the general gameplay, like, loop that you'll be going through should be the first thing that they experience. There shouldn't be, like... They shouldn't be building up elements of it. They should just experience each element of it at the start. I don't know if I'm making much sense now. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, if you know, like Derek, you the guy, uh, he's the guy that made Spelunky. Um, mm -hmm. He has a good. He he talks a lot about. He's gotten really into arcade games again because arcade games kind of fell off, you know, in the console era, in the console days. But they've yeah. kind of that the arcade style of game is starting to come back. And the big thing with arcade games is, you can't like slow burn anything that's not how you get yeah. people to play right like yeah. you, you kind of give everybody all the stuff kind of up front now that doesn't work for every game but that concept of like here's a bunch of the stuff right up front to get intrigued by and interested in with with some sort of like you know here's what i want to go do that experiences all those things will really draw a player in more than just i don't know i'm not a big f i personally just never really grasped the like let the player find stuff 
I don't know. It doesn't well, really work as I well mean, in my mind a lot of the time. You can let the player find stuff, but you can also do it in such a way that they think they're finding stuff when you're actually guiding them. True. And you, also, you let can, them find can, things that aren't normal. Yeah, you, you can build that up to them finding stuff on their own later, but if their mm -hmm. first thing to do is to just like be in an open world and have to find every single possible thing, like be able to find every single possible thing, they're going to be overwhelmed. Yeah, I think we're kind of like like slowly going more and more just because the current model of like games and how they're being so sold and stuff, it's just like slow burning is like the new standard, you know, um, and especially in AAA games, it, they were just finding newer and newer ways to like um, make the longest games as possible and like the slowest games as possible without like being on the border of still being interesting. Um, and I think it's kind of sad to be honest, but um, it is the landscape, I suppose. I do think AAA can get away with a little more because their games are usually sixty bucks, and if you've paid sixty bucks for a game, you're <laughs> gonna generally give it at least a couple of hours. Yeah, yeah, too. But that's I think there is a difference in that. Yeah, too. But that's that's also the problem because people are gonna expect that it's gonna you know they're gonna yeah. play this game for two hundred hours, so it better be worth two hundred hours. Yeah, I think there is a big misconception. Like, I think that's starting to go away now with the concept of like, you know, how many hours can I get out of a game? Because that's that's a really bad metric on a game, mm -hmm. in, like how good a game is, in my opinion. It's like, can you get 100 hours out of it? It's like, no, but you can get a really good five. <laughs> like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I'd much rather, especially nowadays, I don't have the time to play 100-hour mm -hmm. games, especially if there's multiple coming out. What am, No, <laughs> like, I don't, where, where is this time in your life that you have to do this stuff? <laughs> So, but give me a handful of like really good core short experiences. I think that's why the first portal works so well. You know, yeah. it's like a two and a half hour game, like start to finish done a little longer. If you're, you know, if you've struggled with a little more, a little easier, if you're used to that kind of a thing, but it's a really nice, concise length that doesn't wear itself thin. Yeah. In my opinion. I really appreciated that I was able to play both portal games in like two settings over the course of a weekend. <laughs> Yeah, but it's um I was actually surprised because I only played Portal Two and then I played Portal One and then I was like shocked at how short it is and I feel like if you if you release like a triple A game now of this length, people would just say it's an indie game. Because it feels like an indie game, Portal One. Huh. So, yeah. Well I think it also I mean, there is the way of, you know, nobody paid sixty dollars for Portal One either. That's the other big thing, right? It came part of the orange box with a bunch of other things. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think there is that thing. If you're making a shorter experience, yeah, you can't charge sixty bucks for a three-hour experience, most likely. But I'll pay. I'll pay ten bucks for a three-hour experience. I'll pay twenty bucks for three hours. I mean, that's less than a movie. Yeah. Yeah. True. Mm -hmm. Although movies are like five bucks these days. <laughs> five bucks? Where Where are you seeing movies? Like on Amazon and stuff. Um, oh, I mean, if you're renting them online, but if yeah. yeah, if you go to movies, they're like fifteen bucks at yeah, least. Yeah, too. But you are in a physical mm -hmm. space, so if you can get your indie game in a physical space, then you can probably charge fifteen bucks <laughs> for two hours. <laughs> That's it. We're bringing we're bringing back arcades. That's yeah, what we exactly. Yeah. yeah. Let's see. Is everyone answered? I think that's all for the questions. Yep. Let's see. I kind of, I wanted to ask about what you were talking about earlier before we started recording. You're talking about doing games and advertising. Do you mind talking a bit about that on record? So it's pretty yeah, cool. Sure. Yeah. What do you want to know? 
let's see. So you're making games for people. You talk or for you're making branded games. You were also you did a little bit of making games in ads, and that didn't mm-hmm. work well. You said. Could you just talk about about both those things? Okay. Yeah. So I guess a little uh, do a little history without giving too much away of where I worked and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. So I've worked in advertising, like mobile advertising specifically, for the last ten nine ten years. So I've gone through the whole like wild west of mobile into now it becoming a little bit more stable. And we did a good amount, we did a good amount of testing for a while. Playable ads became the big thing. So you could actually play a game as an ad. And there's a difference that you need to think about when you deal with advertising and branding. So there's two different things to think about. One is when you're dealing with brands specifically in branding, you just, you need to make sure that whatever you're making, it's not what, it's no longer what you want to make. You got to think mm-hmm. of it as like work for hire, right? Like what you think is cool doesn't really matter. It needs to be cool, but also fit with whatever brand's messaging is. So sometimes, if you know, again, if you're a if you're a gore guy, well, that's probably not going to fly unless you're doing some <laughs> sort of specific, you know, <laughs> horror based uh, based product. Mm-hmm. So you want to generally lean towards making sure that you're lifting up and then you know ma- making decisions that show off the brand in the best light they can because that's what they're paying you to do. And I mean, moral quandaries, everyone's going to have their own issues of, you know, here or there, you, you set yourself up where you are. I don't, I've never, I've never done, I can say I've never done any of those deceitful ads where, you know, it shows you one game and then you click on it and it's a completely different one. I never did any of those. Are you making those ones with the pins and the the lava? No, see, I I never, I never did any of those kinds of things. (laughs) Yeah. All the ones that I did were specifically, if you saw, whatever you saw in the ad, was what you got in the game, generally just a smaller section of it, right? Uh, but we did find that the playable ads didn't work as well, which I do find interesting because there's also the mm-hmm. argument of like, you know, do you do demos, do you not? You know, like how much how much do you give away before somebody has to actually like, mm. you know, convert? That's, that's such that's a shame to hear because I was just thinking I was going to ask because I love like the old like playable ads, like you do like a little, you shoot a thing and then it goes to a website. Mm-hmm. Um, that was I love those, and then they just like disappeared from the internet forever. Did they really like perform uh, that badly, or? Yeah, they just didn't convert as well because what you do, what you've done. So when you're talking specifically ads, right? Ads, and there's two different ways. If it's an ad like on the side of a website that you just go and click on, that's one thing. Mobile ads are a little bit different, so it may not be the same on desktop. I can only really speak to mobile, but in mobile, mobile ads take over your whole thing unexpectedly, like when you don't want them to. Yeah. So you're already having to like kind of get over the hump of like, I've just interrupted somebody's experience with something. You know, they didn't choose to see this. I've forced this into their face. So if you can get past them wanting to close it immediately, well, now it's the, you used to worry about, you know, dwell time, right? Like how long do they spend on the actual advertisement themselves? You actually don't want it to be that long because the longer they spend on the ad, the less time they're pressing the call to action button and converting. So if right. you give them a playable as a playable thing that they can play and enjoy in the ad, well, cool. They're going to have fun with that. They may even play for a couple minutes and then they're just mm. going to close it because it's an ad Yeah. Uh, and it's- versus if you show them like nowadays, it's converted more to like videos and things of like, here's a quick little snippet of like the coolest parts of this thing. Click here to try it out. And uh-huh. those kinds of things convert better nowadays because again, you're, you want to, it's weird. You want people to stay on the ad longer than a second, because again, if it's less than a second, they've hit the X as fast as possible, but not too long that they won't click that call to action button, which is 
the main goal that you're trying to get with an advertisement. Mm, but that's that's like really weird because I never see because um, you say that if it's like really short, you play it for like five seconds and then goes to the game, right? You say that that works better. Um, um, they they tried that for a while too. Where actually you mm. started playing and while you were playing, it wouldn't let you finish whatever run round yeah. you were trying to do, and it would force you to go over. But uh, one of the things that did is that just pissed a lot of people off. Mm. <laughs> like but, it it irritates mm. people. You you want to avoid irritating someone that you're trying to get them to do something. Oh, that, so in oh go ahead. Yeah, so that's that's really weird because there are a lot of ads where it's like. Oh, you know, um, press here to move this thing. It's like, oh, play the game, and then you press it, and it just goes to a link. It doesn't actually let mm -hmm. you do the game, and that's, that's almost that, more that frustrating. <laughs> yeah. We'll see, but that but that gets the conversion. Um, one thing you have to remember in advertising, conversion is a big part. Like that, actually getting someone to click on that call to action. That's generally your biggest uh, metric, or what in the industry is generally referred to as a KPI. Um, it's the key performance indicator. So that's the mm -hmm. thing that a lot of people like, and you work with the, you work with an advertiser about that, right? Like, what is your goal here? Do you want people to sign up? Do you want people to click and go to this website? What is the, is it just, is it just visual? Like you've got brands like Coke and stuff, right? They don't care as much those giant brands. They spend so much on advertising, not because they want conversions. They don't care as much if you click on the thing, they just need to make sure that their brand is seen. Mm -hmm. They want it in people's faces. They want it showing up more than any other brand. When you work with smaller companies, they care generally more about conversions, more about, you know, they want people to click that thing and go and sign up. So you do have to balance your way of getting them in. Generally, those ones that just show you a thing and then you, you go to like interact with it and it's lying to you and then moves you over to the thing. Their, their goal of the, that company that's doing that is to just get people to click on the ad and go to that website. Yeah. So they're making their money when you click it. So they'll do it in very, you know, not quite the most straightforward ways. So there is that kind of a thing to think about. But generally, if you're doing it, you know, more on the just ethical side and trying to do what's best for both the advertiser and the viewer, it's you don't want them to linger too long because they don't they, they it, it makes it a lot easier to stop. If you feel like you've had an experience, it's a lot easier to walk away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that and then I think what was the other the other question was about, you made was branded going? games like oh, for right. companies so yeah with uh I mean with branded games that's pretty much the same it's yeah it's just make sure that all works don't misrepresent the brand that's a big one is uh don't <laughs> don't mess with brands don't mess with logos if you ever deal with a company and a brand uh even if you don't like their logo if you think it would look better <laughs> in a different way change something don't don't touch it it's not you <laughs> use their colors even if you don't like it they've spent lots of money <laughs> more than they're paying you to develop that. <laughs> so don't mess with it i've seen some good images of like things you're not supposed to do with this logo and all of the ones that they like all of the examples they use i think there was one for the unity logo that was just like everything like every uh everything you're not meant to do it actually was really funny mm -hmm. um, yeah i've built those docs before they're, th uh, those they're, seem they're like fun to make <laughs> like have you seen oh, don't the? Put, um... Don't put a distortion effect on her logo. <laughs> Have you? Yeah, also, just like what what you put it on backgrounds. Backgrounds are mm. a big one too. Yeah. Don't put this on a pattern background. Don't put this on like it. There's a lot of them that'll say this needs to be on a solid background or it needs to be on a solid white or a solid black. Like those are kinds of, those are things that you need to, generally get from, whatever brand sponsor you're working with to, 
make sure that you just fall in line with the brand guidelines and because again when you're working with that they're paying you to represent their brand now if you think that there's a if you have a problem with that just don't take the don't take it to begin with right like don't do that thing um if that's a problem but if you are being paid by somebody to show off their product you should show off their product in the best light you can and uh, in the best way according to their rules as well it's um it's insane because um have you seen the um there's like this document by like the pepsi logo or something of the people that made the pepsi logo and it's like um their theory behind it or something and it's so out there it's like pepsi galaxy and stuff and it's really fucking weird and you know they spend like millions of dollars on that document but it's like <laughs> it starts being almost like ridiculous <laughs> like what it's really about i mean so. when you dig into logos but i mean that's kind of anything right anything that somebody's into there's niches of everything it's the same like most people would look at a game and not think that there's a whole bunch of like underlying things i mean how many people go and div dive into like movies of just like little tiny things that they put in there that 99 of people will not notice or have no clue that it's there but by having that as a framework that helps make the whole thing feel more whole and consistent it's generally the way i look at like when it comes to logos like they're like logos have meaning they're they're uh in iconography, there are meanings for things that are like when you go into sharp points, when you have rounded corners, when you have all of these things, those all have different connotations to the way people work. And then that's not even including color, which color is its whole nother rabbit hole. Yeah. Uh, should we finish up now? All right. Uh, let's see. Is it anyone have anything else? All right. Uh, let's see. Vimlark, do you want to promote anything? Uh, sure. I'll do the shill thing. Um, I make YouTube videos and devlogs about making game jam games, small games. I have one larger project that I'm making and also pixel art things on my YouTube channel, which is just Vimlark on YouTube. I'm, vi I'm basically, I'm Vimlark everywhere online. I also do uh, Twitch streaming four times a week where we make games. We play viewers games we make art we do all that stuff i do that monday tuesday thursday and friday uh the big ones are fridays if you would like we do playing viewers games and giving feedback and that's beneficial for not just the person whose game we're playing just being able to watch and see all the different things people are making you get exposed to so many fun ideas and concepts and then just you can use that stuff in the future and that's honestly one of the biggest things for me i think it's one of my favorite things that i do um, yeah, I think that's yeah, a good one. I've been actually checking out uh, Vimlark's uh, Twitch channel lately and really enjoying the streams. So I Thank highly you. recommend it. It comes with the Burgon Hackett seal of approval. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're pretty good. I enjoy the, I enjoy your streams. Yeah, also, if you're too. there, you can get a little monkey that runs around on screen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, what's the story about your Minecraft video? on your channel <laughs> that's too many oh, views <laughs> the, the roller coaster yeah so that's that's the first video i ever made it's i had never made a video before that um about six years ago i actually it's eight now god we're old um so i had never done video editing or anything like that and i first got into doing youtube stuff like a lot of people eight years ago doing minecraft let's plays uh and i just i rebranded my channel a couple years later because I did it for about four and a half years so I did the thing where people are like how do you get big on YouTube I'm like you know it's like how do you do that so fast and I didn't do it fast I spent four and a half years 
under a thousand subscribers on YouTube making Minecraft Let's Plays. <laughs> and like Joe, just being excited to get 50 views on a video and all of that. Well, there's but your that answer. First I mean, just don't yeah. make Minecraft Let's Plays. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big one. That's a big one. I also, I jumped into a saturated market, which is, makes it hard now with people wanting to do devlogs because it's kind of a saturated market at the moment. So I'm a little, when people are like, how do I get big doing devlogs? I'm like, I don't know right now because everyone's doing them. So you have to stand out in some way. But yeah, that Minecraft roller coaster that was the first YouTube video I ever made. And yeah, I've, I've left it up because, but by the time when I stopped doing YouTube after in the Minecraft time, that video had under 5,000 views. Nobody had watched it. And uh -huh. I stopped doing YouTube for multiple years. And somehow in that time, Minecraft had a big resurgence when I wasn't paying attention to it. And it like just shot up out of nowhere. <laughs> So it's still there because it still gets viewed. It's in the, it's like, you know, it's embedded itself in the algorithm at this point, but mm -hmm. it, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I don't fully like hide from that whole past. Like, I mean, what got me into making games was the fact that I retextured all of Minecraft. It took me a year and a, it took me 418 consecutive days. I released one texture, at least one texture every day until I was done. Dang. Oh, cool. So I retextured the whole game and there was something about watching my art move around on screen that was just like so magical. Mm -hmm. And yeah. ever and then when I got back into it, I was like, I want to do that again, but I didn't want to be beholden to Minecraft or yeah. any other particular game. So that's when I started learning an engine and doing what I do now. Minecraft is actually also what really encouraged me to try and make games as well. Yeah, it's a fantastic game. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't play it I like I I really I've tried playing it again recently, and I just, <laughs> I can't get back into it. I actually, I actually still play, like, probably 100 hours of it every year. Nice. Yeah, it's it's an amazing game. I tried to get back into it. I kind of enjoyed it, but for the most part, I just... It's very I've, different I, now. Yeah, it's definitely very different now. Still, mm -hmm. still fun. I just, yeah, now I'm just, I'm more, I like shorter directed experiences. I don't have the time that I used to have when I played it. That was the big one. Like back in back yeah. in those days, you know, I wasn't I wasn't making really YouTube videos. I just I would come home from work and I'd play a bunch of hours of games at a night. You know, nowadays I just don't have that kind of time. Yeah. All right. Let's but see. Yeah, I... The story with that is that. Yeah. <laughs> I just first ever, ironically, the first ever YouTube video I ever made. It's <laughs> just yeah. did really well. Years I thought later, it was funny because it was just it's so out of place on your channel. Like oh, I I else? still get people always like, why did I get this recommended to me? I'm like, because YouTube. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> algorithm. I think everybody's first video is Minecraft. <laughs> I don't think you can. I don't think you can start YouTube if it's not a Minecraft video, right? You have to put it up. And it's like, is this Minecraft? Try again. <laughs> all right, let's end our recordings then. Yeah. Thanks for joining Vemlark, and uh, yeah, go check out all his stuff in the description if you're watching on YouTube. Otherwise, type it in. Thank you for having me. <laughs>